Now, our Bible reading today is taken from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to read together the first 13 verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, reading, of course, from the authorized verse. Now, we're deviating at this moment from our studies in the book of Colossians in light of the fact that it's Father's Day. Then we're going to think about that particular theme this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Let's hear God's word. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have you have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and trial, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses. And God also, how holy and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, Ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Let me just thank you this morning for being here and for those who are joining with us. It's really good to see uh, individuals back into the house of God. And we pray that the Lord will richly bless you at this time. Now, my text today is taken from our reading, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12. And the scripture says, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children 
that you would walk worthy of God who have called you into his kingdom and glory. And my theme I've entitled The Portrait of a Biblical Father. Now today is known as Father's Day. Some children have already said to their dads, Happy Father's Day. It's the third Sunday in June. I should have remembered that. I almost forgot. I had to be reminded. I was thinking of this fact. When and where and why did Father's Day originally start? And young people, the very first Father's Day didn't start in the United Kingdom. In fact, it started in the United States of America. In 1908, in a West Virginia church, there was a special sermon honoring fathers, and it was preached by the minister. This was on the back of a mining disaster. 362 men had been tragically killed at the end of the service. They gave out white and red uh, flowers uh, to the different families who were heartbroken. And then in 1909, A girl, and her name was Sonora Smart Dodd. She should be able to remember that. Um, She made it her mission to set up a a National Father's Day. Her father was a Civil War veteran. She, along with her five brothers, had been raised by a single father after the mother had died in childbirth. You've got to think of a man bringing up six children, five sons, and a daughter, and that daughter was called Sonora Smart Dodd. And then in 1910, due to this girl's efforts, the Washington State in the United States of America held a statewide Father's Day. The other states were very slack to follow suit. And for many years, it wasn't as popular as Mother's Day. However, it all changed in World War II. Media advertisers used a Father's Day to promote and remember the troops out in the field of battle. And by the end of the war, it had become, in the United States of America, a national institution. Richard Nixon declared Father's Day a national holiday in 1972 when he signed it into the law during a re-election campaign. Now, by this stage, between the end of the war, 1945, and 1972, the United Kingdom was already following America's example and celebrating the third Sunday of June as a special Father's Day event. Now, let me tell you something else. Depending on where you live in the world, the date can change. Many countries, including Spain, Italy, and Croatia, celebrate Father's Day on the 19th of March. Why? This is due to their links with Roman Catholicism that this date, according to Roman Catholicism, is the feast day of St. Joseph, husband of Mary, stepfather, adoptive father to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, if you were a Russian citizen, you would celebrate Father's Day on the 23rd of February each year to tie into the fatherland mentality. Now, think not only of these facts, but think of the focus on Father's Day. The focus on Father's Day is to honor fatherhood, to honor the special role model in our lives. Now, it's wide enough just just physical fathers, but it's wide enough to include, uh, say, um, granddads. It's wide enough to include spiritual fathers. 
We live in an age of wokeism. Attempted cultural change. And this is one of the areas that certain people are attempting to eliminate in our day. The role and the character of fatherhood. Let me illustrate. A little girl by the name of Daisy. Daisy's three. She's coming home from the playgroup in England. She's skipping out the gate. Her mother's there to meet her. And in her hand is a handmade card for her dad. Her dad's called Ed. It's a personal handmade card about Father's Day. She hands it to the mother. The mother's called Carla. She reads the card. And does the card say, Happy Father's Day? Maybe you've given out a Happy Father's Day card? No. The mother's totally gobsmacked. Here's what the card says. Happy special day. You see, I recognize like that mother that many, many children don't have fathers in their lives at home with them. But this wokeism, we have to say, is totally PC. It's ridiculous. In fact, it's crazy and nuts. Why? Because it's a cruel agenda to say that men do not matter. And it's denying the children the opportunity to to honor their fathers. And that was the whole focus of the uh, National Father's Day. It, It was the honoring of fatherhood. You see, I believe it's a biblical right. Doesn't the Bible say in Exodus 20 verse 12, Honor thy father and thy mother. And let me add this. The Bible mentions the word fathers 1,511 times. 1,511 times. Isn't that amazing? Genesis 2.24 is the first time in the occasion of the wedding of Adam and Eve. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. The last reference is in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14 verse 1 where it talks about the father's uh, name in their forehead. And in between there's 1,509 other references. And here's one of them in Second uh, chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 11. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children. Now here in our text, the Apostle Paul is writing to the congregation at Thessalonica. He's appealing to them to remember his ministry among them, And if you look at chapter 2, verse 11, as I have read, notice again what he says, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. See, Paul had vivid memories of the manner and the way that he ministered to the people in Thessalonica. And one of the ways that he had behaved among them was that he treated them as a father treats his children. And I have no doubt that he was the spiritual father of many in that church. If you notice in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. The word entrance is a way in, like an entrance to a house, an entrance to the church. It's a means to go in. Think of the door, the front door. And the Lord had opened up a way for Paul to go into Thessalonica. He had opened a door of opportunity after he came out of Philippi to preach the gospel in Thessalonica also. See the emphasis on what the Lord had done. How the Lord had created and opened the way in. It was not Paul's choice, Paul's devising. It was not Paul's doing. No, the Lord had done it. 
And because of this, despite the fact that it was a very short ministry, Paul witnessed spiritual success of his labor. It wasn't in vain. The Lord blessed and used him there, and souls were saved. They were his spiritual converts. He was their spiritual father. And what Paul is doing here is reputing a false claim that he was out to promote himself, out to make a name for himself, out to make money on the back of the people. And Paul refuses and refutes such a claim. So in this chapter, really in the first 13 verses, he's giving a defense of his ministry in Thessalonica. And as he does so, he sets forth the true nature of a God-given ministry. Here's the kind of ministry he knows that's needed in every age, amongst every generation. And if you read the passage very carefully, you can see the hallmarks and the features and the character, not only of every true preacher of the gospel, but connected to that, the true features and principles we're going to call biblical fatherhood. And here's information that helps us to pray, not only for the minister and the missionaries, but also workers at home and abroad, also for men and men folk. Here's the spiritual characteristics of men of God, men who are earthly fathers. It even would be wide enough to include the granddads, men who are single, men who are young men growing up in the context of families. Such men are sorely needed. And that's what Paul is dealing with here in verses 11 and 12. Now let's think of three things as you think with me of the um, portrait of biblical fathers. We've thought about the fact of fatherhood and the focus of fatherhood. The first thing I would say to you this morning here is the concern of the biblical father. Now notice verse 11. As ye know how we exhort it. So, so we're going to pause there. You see that word exhort? You, you would think, well, that has to do with encouragement. And you'd be 100% right. But it's, it's wider than that. It's deeper than that. The, the word exhort actually means to put into people's minds something. And here's Paul as a spiritual father. What does he want to put into people's minds? What's his aim? What's his object? What's his, his goal, if we want to put it that? Look, look at the context. He says, as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God. The word that in verse 12 is a demonstrative. And here's his chief concern, that ye would walk worthy of God. He's thinking of his spiritual children here. Here's his overriding concern, the purpose of his existence, the thing that's uppermost in his heart and mind. And it's this that they would walk worthy of God. In other words, they would be get saved and, and live for God. Paul is appealing here to the congregation in Thessalonica to remember. Look at verse 9. He says, For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. He says in verse 10, Ye are witnesses. And God also, how holy and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. And then he adds the words, here's his appeal. As ye know how we exhort it, how we put the word of God into your heart and mind through our preaching and through our prayers. You see, Paul was among them as a man of God. 
He hadn't come with words of man's wisdom. He hadn't come with the vain philosophy of man. He hadn't come with a man-made message. He'd come with one message to Thessalonica. And you know what it was? It was the gospel of God. That was Paul's message. The good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, there's seven references in the New Testament to the word the gospel of God. Romans 1 and 1. Romans 15 verse 16. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 7. And here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 2. He mentions it again in verse 8. He mentions it in verse 9. And it's lastly mentioned in Peter's letter, 1 Peter 4 and 17. Here's the message that Paul brought. The message that Paul preached. It had to be the gospel. Seven references, the gospel of God. In other words, it's a perfect and complete message. It's a message that everyone needs. It's a message that's tailor-made. We're not to add to that message. We're not to take away from that message. Paul knew this. The gospel was important to him. Remember what he said to the church at Galatia in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6 and 7. He made this um, uh, statement. Galatians 1 verse 6 and 7. He said this, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. That's strong language. Here's very solemn words, folks. Paul is protective of the gospel. He's protective of the gospel as a father is protective of the family name, of the family reputation, as a father is protective of his children. What did Paul's children need? They needed to hold on to the gospel if they're going to walk worthy of God. You see, Paul repeated it in Galatia. Just in case it was missed, he was troubled that many pervert the gospel. Troubled that many change the message into something that is entirely different in character. Something that's not the gospel. You see, if you preach a gospel without Jesus Christ in his center and his person and work, I have to tell you, it's not the gospel. Take Jesus Christ out of the gospel and you don't have a message. Remember Paul said, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus come into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Here was the concern of a biblical father that the children in Thessalonica, the spiritual children that he had, that they would walk worthy of God. That they would walk in light of the gospel, in light of its truth. I want to ask this morning as fathers, is that our chief concern? Is that our ultimate goal for our children? That they would walk worthy of God in light of the gospel, in light of the good news, that we'd be so protective of them that our concern is that they're under the sound of the gospel, that they grew up with the gospel, that, that they live the gospel. I've asked myself this, especially yesterday, what type of father am I? Am I a father that lives to be missed? A father with a godly influence, whose chief concern is for the gospel, and that the children walk in truth in light of that gospel. See, there's a little girl, she wrote an article to the local paper, and this was the title of the article, 
My father woke up, went to work, and never came home. It's a real tearjerker of a story. Every day my dad woke up, left for work, then came home, he washed, he ate food, he chatted to mum, I went off to bed. I didn't see him much. He wasn't always at home. We didn't get to much spend time together. But he was special. When we needed someone to open the pickle jar, it was dad that did it. When we needed someone to go into the basement to get something, he went by himself because we were afraid to go. When he cut himself shaving, nobody cried or cared. He just got on with it. There was no big excitement. I fell and cut myself. I was being rushed off to the hospital. When it rained, he was the one who brought the car into, around to the front door. He washed the car every week. He cut the grass. He would take me to church. He kissed mum and me goodnight. He read the Bible. He offered prayer. I had two dolls that dad bought me. I had a mummy doll and a daddy doll, but I never really played with the daddy doll. I just threw it under the bed. I always played with the mummy doll. I never talked to him too much. But now he's gone. One day he woke up, went to work, but never came back. He had an accident at work. He ended up in the hospital. And by the time I got to the hospital, my daddy was gone. And now he's gone and missing. And you see, isn't that so true of many? Young people, boys and girls growing up, when, when dad, that special figure in the home, when that dad is gone, how, how, how do the children feel? What the children think? And I'm thinking of the absence, not just of the physical presence of a dad, but the absence of spiritual fathers, godly fathers, Christian men. And that's what we need in the house of God and, and for the work of God because they provide so much stability in the home. And today, you see, isn't it so sad because of this PC culture that we live in? It's fatherhood is being redefined. Especially the male role models. It's all this PC stuff, this transgender nonsense. And it's an attempt to redefine what the Bible says. Well, we need to get back to what the Bible says. Because, you see, godly fathers with a chief concern for the gospel, that their children might walk in truth, their chief concern is this, to love their wives and raise their children, bring them to the house of God, teach them, tell them about the Lord Jesus. And that's what makes them special. That's what makes them dad. Let me tell you something else, not only the concern of the biblical father, but the comfort of the biblical father. Notice the words in the text, as you know how we exhort it, and comfort it. See, see that word is very special. And I want you to link that word up with verse 7. It says in verse 7, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. You see, there's a principle here. It speaks of the type of behavior among the Thessalonians. Not that he exhort and put the word of God and the gospel into their hearts and minds, but he sought to comfort them in all the areas that they needed comfort to such an extent that he was among them as one who was gentle, but were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. What did it mean? Well, it means that he wasn't rude. He, he wasn't mean. He wasn't ugly. Paul had a very gracious, gentle, mild manner. 
That's the principle here. But notice the picture. As a nurse cherisheth her children. Now, now think of a nurse. And we have some nurses here. And we're glad to have them. And we welcome you in the Lord's name. But you think of a nurse nursing children. Especially trying children. Maybe sick children. Children who are, who, who are crying. And you need a lot of patience. And you need a spirit of gentleness. And the reference here is not just to a nurse in the hospital. But it's really you've got to think of a nurse at home. You've got to think of, of a mother in this role. Nursing her own children. Because it's, the, the, the issue is children that are born. And Paul saw himself in Thessalonica as a nursing mother to children to comfort them. They were his spiritual offspring. They were just newborn children. They had been brought into the kingdom of God. And how does he treat them? He treated them gently. It wasn't harsh. It was with love and sympathy and empathy. As I said, the issue had to do with birth, but the issue had to do with brooding. If you look at the word cherisheth here in verse 7, notice this word, as a nurse cherisheth her children. The, the word cherisheth there means, um, as exactly as I've said, it has to do with brooding. It's an issue of keeping them warm. Keeping them safe, keeping them healthy, keeping them well. You've got to think of the, the mother hen keeping the little chickens warm after they've hatched. See, we, we talk in farming terminology about a, a brooding hen. It's mentioned in Deuteronomy 22 verse 6. It was mentioned by the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. He talked about a mother hen. And as a, a mother hen gathers her chicks, especially in danger or in fire, so I would have gathered you, but ye would not. They were rebellious. You see, you've got to think of the mother hen and her relationship to the chickens. And the Holy Spirit used that word here because it had to do with how he nurtured them. All the things that they needed to grow and develop spiritually, he had provided in other words, he had a very warm, gentle, spiritual ministry among them. He wasn't cold-hearted. He wasn't mechanical. He hadn't a chilling, bone-cutting ministry. It was a ministry to warm people, to, to bring to life those precious souls. Over there in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 5 and in the verse 29, we read this of Christ about his relationship with the church. No man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. There's the same word. The word cherisheth. And of course, you've heard the little children's song being sung, uh, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He was once a little child. But remember what we also read of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now I, my, I, now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Think of that. The meekness and gentleness of Christ. Just as Christ wasn't harsh and cruel and mad and vindictive. Here's the principle. Here's the mark of the man of God. He's a reasonable person. He's not a fighter. He doesn't strive. 
He's not cruel or harsh or vindictive. Isn't this exactly what Paul exhorted Timothy in um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24? And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach and patient. You see, we could give extreme examples of fathers who are harsh and cruel and mad and vindictive, but they're not all like that. Paul wasn't like that as a spiritual father to this church. And he's setting us an example, not just for spiritual activity, but for living out our lives. Being a gentle, caring, loving kind of father who has such a relationship to the children that he lives for the need of his family. He's not to provoke them to wrath. That's what Ephesians 4 says. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but to be gentle. And there's the comfort. He was like as a a nursing individual amongst them because he was out to comfort them. Notice the last thing. The charge of the biblical father. You see, he says here, as you know how we exhort it, that's put the gospel into your heart and mind and set it before you so you'd walk worthy of that and comforted you as a nurse cherishes her children and charges every one of you. See, here's another aspect to this. It's not only having a concern and not only a comfort, but but there's a charge. Paul recognized that he had responsibilities when he came into Thessalonica. And there was a charge in relation to his work. You see, if you notice verse 8 and 9, he's asking them to remember. And what does he ask them to remember? Our labor. And travail for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. You see, it doesn't work. If you think of the word labor, it has to refer to the point of weariness. It was D.L. Moody said that as God's servant, he didn't want to rust out, but he wanted to wear out. You see, there's labor involved in being a father. Notice the word here, and travail. And that has to do with painful effort. Back-breaking work. To your stiff and sore. That's how Paul served the Lord. And then he added the words, laboring night and day. You see, he was a, 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 a willing and ready worker. So that he would not be chargeable. So that he'd not be accused of using the ministry as a cloak of covetousness. In fact, he says that in verse 5. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, not a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. He was not a charlatan. He was not a, a peddler of a false message. Paul, when he came into Thessalonica, labored. He travailed. He labored day and night. You know what he did? He worked with his hands. He was a tent maker. Acts 18, his trade was tent making. And night and day, practically, he he worked at his trade. Night and day, he preached the gospel to all who would listen, even as he worked. And night and day, he prayed. You see, he was a busy busy man. He he was a laborer that he might not be a burden. And, And this man had this charge that he was genuine in his work. Can I tell you something else very quickly? He was genuine in his way. Look at verse uh, 10. Ye are witnesses, and God also how holy and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you, 
that belief, the word holy here, ties in not only to his godliness and his genuineness, but his kindness, his mercifulness, his thoughtfulness. The word justly here has to do with righteousness, right living, unblameably, uh, without fault. They couldn't find fault with Paul. What a testimony. In other words, he was a spiritual attractive man. So when he charged them to, about this work, he also charged them about his way. Remember, before you, I was a spiritually attractive man. He was a man whom you, you delighted to be in his company. And if I can add this, he was also genuine in his words. He says that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. You see, central to Paul was preaching the gospel that the gospel might be lived out among men. That individuals in the context of a spiritual family would be led into the word of God. And that they would follow his example. In fact, he says in verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own selves, because ye were dear unto us. His love triumphed. His love succeeded. And even when his children failed and did wrong and messed things up, he, he still loved them all the same. He was affectionately desirous of them. He not only said it, but he showed it. It was intensive. It was genuine. Let me wrap up this morning. Here's Paul, and he's really a model for the gospel. And Paul knows that life is precious. Paul knows that life is hard. Paul knows that life has to have a meaning and purpose. And Paul knows that the children that were under his care in Thessalonica were looking to him for genuineness. And isn't ungenuineness a big turn off, especially for those who we call the millennial children? Do we not know that if we behave hypocritically, then that impacts upon them. That applies to the home, that applies to the church. We, we must be genuine as men of God. And even if we charge the children, setting an example, labor in this way, and charge the children, here's how to live, and charge the children in relation to our words, then we, we, we must be genuine. Because if we're ungenuine, that will have a, an impact upon them. Many of our children don't know God in an intimate, saving way. And it's our responsibility as fathers to tell them and teach them. And we must love them and give them good and wise counsel. And we want our children to know that if they come for counsel and help, then they will receive that. And of course, we should develop such a relationship that no matter what the area of help is, whether it's finance or how to treat your wife or spending time together or doing things together or discipline, even in the times we have to say no to them, we're not provoking them to wrath. We're not setting unrealistic goals for them. We're being a model of the gospel. We're transporting our life into the way we live because they're dear to us. And that will impact upon our decisions. Is that true of us this morning? Here's just a sketch. 
I've only scratched the surface. The portrait of a biblical father. 1,511 or 13 verses. And there's so much to say. But let's take on board and ask ourselves and search our heart. What's our chief concern for our children? Is it the gospel of God and they might walk in that? In truth. What, what comfort do we have for our child? How, how do we behave amongst them? What are we like, really, when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of things? And what charge do we give them? What do, do, what's example do we set in word and in deed? May the Lord take these few thoughts and apply them to our hearts and speak to us at this particular time.